Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Let's read it together one more time. Here we go. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay, we've looked at every spiritual blessing. We've looked at the blessing of prayer. Now we're going to be looking at the blessing of grace and the blessing of the body. We'll start with discussion again. Um, Let me give you five minutes. Let's go straight into it. And at the end of it, can I ask you please to write every phrase that describes our state the state that we're in that's listed in verse 1 and th- one to 3. Okay, so five minutes, work your way through the passage, see what the key things are that Paul's dealing with. Now, I know this is a much bigger passage because actually this is talk 3 and talk 4, which was going to happen for the whole weekend away that I've compressed. So um, we are looking at a bigger passage for this final bit. Okay, let's have a look at what our problem is. <laughs> All right, after the magnificent images of God's glory and his lavish kindness to us that we've looked at in chapter 1, when we hit chapter 2, Paul actually brings us down to earth with a resounding thud. We, as it were, go from the sublime to the ridiculous, or worse still, from the sublime to the grave. Verse 1 to 3 actually focuses on fallen humans and on our hopeless condition, and as this is um, a result of our sin. So Paul now begins to highlight the powerless, hopeless, lifeless condition of fallen human beings, enslaved by their own fleshly desires and dominated by the world around them and by Satan. A dead person is helpless. And a person who is spiritually dead is separated from God and is therefore under the control of the prince of the power of the air, is what he's called in some passages. That is the demonic power of Satan that we see in verse 2. So Satan rules the created world. This is the realm that is antagonistic to God. It's the realm that is subject to demonic rule over all who live without Christ. In many cases, it's our friends, neighbours and family, whose lives are shaped by popular media or by self-interest rather than by godly counsel. We who are Christians followed the ways of this world, as this passage says, before Christ came into our lives. But sadly, sometimes we still do. We're very susceptible to the attitudes and the perspectives of this world, and Satan knows that we're vulnerable to his persuasions because of our passions and lusts and because of our thoughts and beliefs. I've had a few conversations with people over lunch about decisions that their family members are making where once they professed Christ and now they're being lured away by the call of this world, by Satan's lies and deceptions. And his lies and deceptions come in many subtle and very destructive forms. We can easily get caught up and be very influenced by the latest ideas being taught to us by the numerous media outlets. We even use the term influencers as an overt statement. You can be sure that Satan is strategically at work through all of these means. And thanks to Donald Trump and others, we are well aware that we have to be increasingly very discerning as to whether we are taught or told the truth or whether it's actually fake news. And as Christians, probably even more importantly, we must ask ourselves, is what we're being taught or told fake spiritual news? It's critical that we ask ourselves whether what we're hearing or being influenced to think actually measures up against God's truth. Our struggle can often be that we're more interested in doing what feels right than in doing what God has declared to be right. 
Instead of our emotions being controlled by God's truth, our emotions instead distort our understanding of God's truth. So in a world where I could identify as a six-foot-four, 15-year-old Chinese male because that's the way I feel, I can't be questioned for having that perception because that's hate speech. Or I can lose a job or be in prison for having a Christian value system. We have some serious struggles with perception and perspective to contend with in our world. And Satan has a lot of material to work with in his agenda to seek to deceive us. In some countries, of course, this has been the case for as long as they can remember. And Christian brothers and sisters have been imprisoned and persecuted and tortured for that exact thing, that is, holding to God's truth rather than their own feelings, despite the cost. Paul refers to the heavenly realms four times in Ephesians. It's in the heavenly realm where Christ reigns. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 20. And Christians sit with him in the heavenlies, chapter 2, verse 6, we've just read. God's wisdom is made known through the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places in chapter 3. Christians war against evil forces in the heavenly realm, chapter 6. He's speaking of the spiritual realm. The spiritual life is a struggle. It's a spiritual warfare, and it's not merely with human opponents, but with a host of heavenly forces. And that starts with our bondage to Satan until such time as faith and trust in the Lord Jesus rescues us and magnificently releases us from those chains and redeems us into eternal life, which gives us freedom. Now, we don't tend to discuss the whole idea of a spiritual realm in our Australian culture much, but I can assure you that in Kenya this was a pretty regular topic of discussion. In fact, it would be front-page news literally in the paper, which doctor casts spell on men in a bar. That was the leading news in the equivalent of the Sydney Morning Herald. People would as quickly go to the witch doctor on Saturday as they would attend church on Sunday. But why do we not consider it as much here in Australia? Is that because an active spiritual realm only exists in other countries? Fifteen years ago, when I was an Anglican minister's wife in a suburb in the south of Sydney, we had people due for dinner who arrived ten minutes early. Who arrives ten minutes early? So I madly wiped off the last bits of splashed tomato off my shirt and lamented that my guests, instead of arriving to the pristine home of a domestic goddess, were in fact going to have to see that. Actually, I was desperately normal, and the house was not quite as immaculate as a mother of three young children wanted to pretend that it was. So I walked to the door with my three-year-old daughter in tow and tried to open the front door to greet our guests, only to find that it wouldn't budge. When I looked down to try and see why, I discovered a woman curled up on the doorstep quivering in what appeared to be desperate fear. I gently coaxed her inside our home and tried to ascertain what was wrong. Over the next three years of ministry to her, we discovered that she had been raised in a satanic cult and was severely traumatised by the whole experience in sunny downtown southern Sydney. I can assure you that if I didn't already have some sense of Satan being alive and well in his malicious agenda to destroy human beings made in his image. I was even more convinced by the journey alongside this precious lady. Now, whilst that's more dramatic evidence of Satan's murderous work than we normally come across, this passage makes so clear that if we are not in Christ, who has brought us into the kingdom of light, then we are controlled by the prince of this world in what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness. 
So as children of God, we're just passing through on this earth. And again, someone beautifully quoted that earlier. Was that you again, Tonya? Somebody said it beautifully, and I thought, right on the money. We're just passing through. Philippians 3 reminds us of that. And in this, we acknowledge the existence of the spiritual realities, the spiritual influences, and the spiritual goals that we have, because we recognize that life is more than the physical. Indeed, we started this series of studies recognizing that the spiritual realm is the place in which God gives us all our spiritual blessings. So verse 1 to 3 makes so clear that we need a saviour for three significant critical reasons. One, because of our corruption and sin. Two, because of our captivity to Satan. And three, because we are condemned to hell. Paul doesn't sugarcoat it for us. Hey, uh, listen guys, we may have a wee bit of a problem here. He's not really saying that. No, he makes clear that we're desperately and hopelessly lost. We're not sick, we're dead. We are without life, without hope, without potential, without worth. Any value we may have or any hope must come from outside us. And thankfully it does come in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, which Paul goes on to explain in verse 4 to 6. Let's move on and have a look at God's grace. Thankfully that's not the end of the story. It's pretty dismal. But Paul needs to outline for us our spiritual state so that we realize the wretched situation we're in and the desperate need we have so that we can fully appreciate the rescue mission that was waged on our behalf. Imagine you're walking along a footpath and a guy runs up to you and gives you an almighty shove that sends you flying a good few metres onto someone's front lawn. I imagine your reaction would be one of outrage and disbelief at his audacity. What are you doing? But if the next minute a car flies up onto the footpath where you had been standing, you would suddenly perceive this guy's actions in a completely different light once you realised the grave danger you'd been in. And this is why Paul stressed the grave danger. We'd all been in this before Christ did what he did on the cross. But he then goes on to say, yes, we are all in a hopeless and helpless state or condition, but thankfully God has sorted that in Christ. So in this section from verse 4 to 6, Paul focuses on God, on his mercy and grace in making a provision for man's salvation in Christ. Paul contrasts our position with the risen and the ascended Christ. Christ is alive because of his righteousness, but we are dead because of our sins. Christ is exalted, seated in the heavens. We are on and we're of the earth. Christ has been given power and authority over all other powers and authorities. We here are subject to the powers and authorities and controlled by them if we don't have Christ. So this is the but God section. That is, we are dead in sin, but God made us alive with Christ. We were captive to the prince of the power of the air and enslaved to the course of this world, but God raised us up with Christ and made us sit with him in the heavenly places. We were children of wrath and deserving of an eternity in the torments of hell, but God, instead of pouring out wrath, will spend eternity showing the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So verse 4 to 6 are the verses of hope, but 1 to 3 are the description we need to realise why we need that hope. And as we move on to verse 7 and 9, one very striking characteristic of the epistle to the Ephesians is its frequent reference to God's purposes and what God's reason is in giving us Jesus Christ. His chief desire is that all men should come to know the glory of his grace. 
It's the deepest and most intimate expression of a God who says that he is love. He delights to bless us, and his greatest spiritual blessing to us is our redemption in Christ. The overwhelming gift of grace poured out on us, the undeserving, but the dearly loved. And when he speaks of the ages to come, it's a phrase that encompasses all of the ages, all of the stages, all of the cultures, all of the contexts and countries from then on. One of those ages is the year 2022 here in the Central Coast for all of the ages. And is there anything we've done or can do to achieve or receive this glorious gift of reconciliation with the Creator God? No, nothing. Nada. Zilch. Verse 9 makes this so clear because verse 10 then goes on to talk about good works. First, though, Paul goes on to great pains to make clear that it is all the work of Christ and absolutely none of the work of human beings, not a single one of us. So before he speaks of good works in verse 10, he makes clear our good works have not won this. It's only Christ's perfect work. But once we understand that, we can go to verse 10. What's our purpose? We know what God's purpose is, our purpose. Having received God's undeserved grace, he gives us a purpose. Good works that God has prepared for us. When I have a student come into class who is very shy and is obviously struggling to fit in, I usually give them a job because that immediately gives them something to do, gives them value, gives them a purpose. And then they feel like they have something that they can contribute. God has given us value and chooses to allow us to partner with him in his kingdom work for his glory. Remember the dad pushing the mower. God gives us that job and delights in us being a part of it. Not so that we can earn his favor or our salvation or even get to him to like us better. God already perfectly loves us. He even loved us perfectly before we trusted in him, while we were still sinners, so we don't need to earn anything more from him. I love the statement that God couldn't love you any more and he couldn't love you any less. God is love. So any good works we do are a response of love and gratitude and excitement about being part of his salvation kingdom purposes. See, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, presents us with the gospel as a God-centered gospel, not a human-centered gospel. It contains no opportunity for human boasting, but only the grace of God resulting in the glory of God. It presents a salvation which is all of God. The words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 are surely fitting as related to God's salvation. Romans 11 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And as we move on to the next section, in verse 11, the key focus then, understanding all of that, is reconciliation. Now, in Australia, we've been hearing a lot about reconciliation in relation to our First Nations, Indigenous people. So we're pretty familiar with the term and the concept. For our First Nations people, reconciliation means acknowledged Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples as the first peoples of this land and recognising that these people were dispossessed, persecuted and oppressed as a result of colonisation in Australia. That's what the understanding of reconciliation in that context is. When we look at theologian Wayne Grudem defining reconciliation, he says it's the removal of enmity 
and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. In verse 11 and 12, Paul describes who we were. Okay, we're aware of many tragic um, global conflicts at present, and it's hard to see any prospect of resolution or reconciliation between the Ukraine and Russia, between Afghanistan and the people opposing there. But here Paul talks about a deep-seated conflict that really was healed. He talks about people who once were far away being brought close, not just physically near to each other, but personally close. It's an intimacy and a closeness that is all about our new identity in Christ. As with the commencement of chapter 2, Paul is stating very clearly an unattractive and unhappy picture of our former state. But again, he's asking us to remember it so that we can see the stark contrast and marvel at God's extraordinary grace to us. Traditionally, Jewish people referred to non-Jewish people using the biblical word for nation, which actually translates into English as Gentile. So Jewish men and boys were circumcised as a special sign that they were to be God's holy, law-keeping people. Gentiles, by and large, were not circumcised. It's always an interesting discussion when there's men in the room. It's a different one with women, isn't it? Often this difference led to Jewish and non-Jewish people calling each other derogatory names. And this wasn't just harmless name-calling, but rather an expression of a very deep-seated hostility. But this hostility between Jewish people and Gentile people didn't come out of nowhere. See, Jewish people understood themselves to be God's holy, special, and pure people, the worshippers of the true God, unlike the Gentiles who were considered impure because they worshipped idols. There was deep, deep animosity between Jews and Gentiles, So as we look at this passage, that hopefully will help us to understand why this is such a significant thing that's being stated. Verse 13 to 22 looks at how Christ works that reconciliation. In this passage, it's made clear that these Gentiles have now been brought close to God, but not just to God, but close to the Jews, to the Israelites. Neither Gentiles nor the Jewish Israelites can claim to be responsible for this reconciliation. Because this has been achieved only through the blood of Christ, who in his flesh has broken down the dividing wall, not anything they've done. We're all saved by God on the same basis. Therefore, we are God's forgiven yet holy people together. That fact is bigger than any hostility we can think of. Paul uses two interesting phrases that we need to understand. He says, one, you who once were far off have been brought near. And secondly, he says, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, both these phrases actually refer to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem during the time of Herod. In that temple was something called the court of the Gentiles. Probably should have gotten you a picture. Sorry, I didn't get that far. Between the Jew and the Gentile was a a physical five-foot-high dividing wall between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women in the temple at Jerusalem. And on this wall appeared the often-repeated inscription to Gentiles warning them to go no deeper into the temple precincts. If they did, they would have only themselves to thank for their death, which would inevitably follow. So this wall represents the prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was no love lost between these two groups of people. There are some significant famous walls in history and in the world. Okay, the wall around the city of Jericho, which was marched around, the Berlin Wall, the Great Wall of China. 
All of them represented aspects of hostility. An American pastor by the name of Dr. Don Harbuck once said that all these walls are really just one wall. He said the wall is everywhere. All of us know about it. No age or age group has gone unshaped by its power. Its menacing power moves the length and breadth of human existence. What wall is it? Paul calls it the dividing wall of hostility that keeps people apart. It keeps them suspicious and distrustful of each other. It kills fellowship and breeds prejudice and spreads gossip and sets loose the dogs of war. It takes many forms, but it always remains the same wall wherever we encounter it. In this passage in Ephesians 2, Paul is, of course, referring to the divide between Jews and Gentiles, but this covers all nations and tribes. When my husband Paul and I were in Jerusalem three years ago, we certainly noticed a dividing wall of hostility, but this was between Jews and Muslims. So we had to pass through security points where military men armed with rifles on both sides of the divide would scan us before letting us through into different parts of Jerusalem that belonged either to the Jews or the Muslims. The wall that separated Jews and Gentiles has, however, been removed. The blood of Christ has taken it away. Jesus tore down that wall. He abolished the Jewish ceremonial law and he preached peace to both. Jesus came to remove all prejudice. No longer can a Jew claim to have access to God simply because of his lineage. All people are now granted access to God through Christ alone. Verse 18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In Kenya, one of the things we had to get used to was tribalism. The tribes were fiercely loyal to their own people. There was a lot of hatred between the tribes and violence and bloodshed were part of the outworking of that. We'd only been in the country for 10 days when we were told that we needed to have go bags ready to evacuate the country because of the looming presidential election. We had a number of times leading up to a few presidential elections which are intensely tribally oriented. And we had to be prepared because in the past there'd been such widespread rioting and violence and killing that the recommendation from the embassies was the expatriates evacuate prior to the elections. So we had go bags packed a few times. Thankfully, we never had to actually carry out the evacuation plans. But the animosity, the dividing wall of hostility was so evident between those tribes. Where we saw those walls brought down was within the fellowship of the church over there where the different tribes gathered together to worship the same God and love each other as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. For almost seven years, I was involved in a women's empowerment project in Kibera slum in Nairobi. This is the third biggest slum in the world with close on one million people living in squalor in four square kilometres. This project was established by a British missionary woman who very intentionally selected women from all different tribes. And she studied the Bible with them as well as teaching them a paying skill. The selection from the different tribes was an intentional way of demonstrating to them that all are equal in Christ. And these women went on to support each other as Christian sisters through some dreadful tribal incited violence, where one tribe was massacring members of another tribe. These women expressed their oneness in Christ over and above their tribal allegiance because they understood that Jesus had brought down the earthly wall of hostility. They lived out the spiritual reality that recognised they were fellow citizens with God's people and also members of the one household. But we also experienced the animosity between the Muslims and Christians with churches, universities 
and shopping centres being bombed in the name of religious violence. You may have heard of the Westgate Shopping Centre bombing in 2014 in Nairobi, where Muslim extremists came into the shopping centre and shot anyone who identified themselves as Christian rather than Muslim. This was a shopping centre we would visit from time to time. Thankfully, we were not there that day, but some of our friends were. The dividing wall of hostility is alive and well. Whilst we have a reconciliation process going on in Australia between the Indigenous people and those who colonise this land, closer to home we can give examples of families where this is evident. Marriages that have been broken down, children and parents who've been estranged. Christmas time can sometimes be the time that rather than being a wonderful celebration is an ongoing, excruciatingly painful experience of a dividing wall of hostility. Paul wants us to understand that Jesus came into the world to tear down just such walls of hostility. See, Jesus is in the business of making one kingdom. In reconciling us to himself and with each other, God is seeking to build one kingdom under one head, and that is Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, From 11 to 22, restoration happens between humans and God and between human beings with each other. Christ has removed the dividing wall of hostility and enmity between us and God and has taken our sin away. We've been restored to fellowship with God. As believers, we have experienced the joy of reconciliation, but with this blessing comes responsibility. We are to be ministers of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, are tools the Lord uses to bring people to him and to bring human enemies together. Paul uses the imagery of the Holy Spirit as a bricklayer, so the Holy Spirit takes his tools and mortar and lays one brick at a time. Every person who comes to faith in Christ becomes another brick in the temple of God and becomes part of an eternal, holy nation, a royal priesthood. This is the true temple which will never be torn down, a temple made up of God's rescued and redeemed children, washed clean by the blood of the perfect lamb, the Lord Jesus. The final picture in the book of Revelation is one of all the reconciled nations gathered around the throne of the lamb who has won their reconciliation through his shed blood. If we look at this world through earthly lenses, it is indeed difficult to find much cause for optimism. But if we look with spiritual eyes enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we can have supreme hope and confidence and joy, not in the world around us, but in the God whom Paul served, the God of whom he writes, whom he worships, and to whom he prays in Ephesians. The truths of this great letter of Ephesians can transform your life, and the God of this letter can give you faith, hope, and love through to eternity. So what is the response to our heavenly calling? To be committed to the ministry of reconciliation. Take five minutes to write a prayer to God as you ponder what we've just looked at in this final bit of Ephesians. Ephesians.